known While he played on his trombone Someone played with me since monotony A snappy clarinetta She heard him play And strange to say She liked him better T'was the end of Mr. Monotony There's a moral to my song Trombone players don't last long Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, will be released in September of 2022 and can now be pre-ordered on Amazon. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. <laughs> Peter, among all those other things, you've also uh, written a, uh, what I'm going to call a five-minute version of The Merchant of Venice. Is it five <laughs> minutes, really? It's probably about 85 minutes. But, 85 uh, minutes. But uh, listeners who uh, heard me talk a few weeks ago about The Merchant of Venice and my objections to it, uh, I mentioned at that time that I had um, whittled down the play to make, uh, to make it um, leaner and not meaner. And um, so at the Shakespeare Troop of Florida is doing it as a benefit on uh, April 23rd in Boca Raton. So I'm really excited to get down there. Jeremy Quinn is directing, uh, who I've known because he has certainly helped out many, many times with our Theatre World Awards, God love him. And um, so I'm certainly looking forward to seeing uh, this. And um, uh, what I also have to say, God bless Michael Galman, uh, the guy who's running the place, because when I sent him the proposal, he answered in two days. When um, I sent him the actual script, he answered in two days. I mean, this does not happen. <laughs> yeah. 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 People people ignore you for, for years, you know, when you write them and uh, yeah. all and, and when you finally do get them, there's a million excuses. Um, so uh, I, I always point out that when Moss Hart sent his script of Once in a Lifetime to George S. Kaufman, he thought about something that he had forgotten. So he called this is an act one. He calls him up and he says, Mr. Mr. Kaufman, um, I, um, a play of mine was sent to you tonight and uh, today. And George S. Kaufman said, yes, I'm reading it tonight. And I always say, if George S. Kaufman can read them the day he gets them, why can't you? Anyway, Michael <laughs> Galman is the best I've ever had. So I'm looking forward to seeing The Money Lender of Venice, because uh, which is really what the play should be called anyway, because Antonio is not uh, such the major character in uh, The Merchant of Venice. But Shylock certainly is in mine. And um, it's he gets treated much better and he makes better decisions. So we'll see what happens. All right. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. 
Hello. And uh, Peter, also, uh, we were chatting before we started that there was this really interesting production of Ain't Misbehaving that you saw in at Fairlawn High School in New Jersey, with, and you took along uh, Richard Maltby with you. <laughs> oh, did he take me? I don't know. Well, I guess I took him because I was the one who had to tell him how to maneuver New Jersey Transit uh, <laughs> since I had a lot of experience with that. So, all right, I took him. Um, but I gave him the aisle seat, you know, when we mm. got there. No, uh, yeah, John Gerisi, um, who uh, is the drama teacher at Fairlawn High School, um, we got to know each other because every year in New Jersey, they give out awards uh, for high school theater. And uh, they, uh, as crazy as this may sound, um, they actually do give out a Peter Felicia Award. <laughs> um, and they, I understand the laughter. I too, truly do. I didn't even have to die to get it. But anyway, um, the thing is, he won a few years ago. So we've stayed in touch. And he told me he had this radical uh, interpretation of um, Ain't Misbehaving. And uh, so that was enough for me to say, OK, I'll get out to Fairlawn and I'll get out to see it. And uh, Richard Maltby heard the idea and sanctioned it. So um, that was pretty good. It's a smart idea. Yeah, I mean, Ain't Misbehaving, uh, we've all seen a million times um, with um, the cast of five uh, doing Fat Swallow Song one after the other. And uh, that's great. What John did was set it in a high school classroom and it's Black History Month. And so he is teaching his kids about Fat Swallow and the kids assignments have been, it's a musical theater class uh, have uh, to learn Fat Swallow songs. And um, they come to really appreciate that music, which they certainly haven't heard beforehand until the teacher brought it to their attention. And it makes them better people because, of course, even especially with the final song, Black and Blue, which really brings up the good point of, you know, uh, race relations. Um, so. So as a result, um, it was quite, quite effective. Richard Maltby was very pleased, I'm happy to say. And um, a good time was had by all. But um, I, I hope he continues working on it. Um, I hope that this happens for real, that it is able to get licensed, because I think there's a lot of worth in it. And um, so uh, a really good head start on a very good idea. All right. So that is uh, something very interesting. I found an article on it, so I'll throw that in the show notes. Oh, good. With us today, we have a very special guest joining us by Zoom. <laughs> Debbie Gravitt is joining us. Broadway fans know that Debbie is a Tony Award winner, a Grammy Award winner, an Emmy nominee, and has found herself in demand from the Broadway stage to the concert stage and beyond. After making her Broadway debut in the original cast of their Playing Our Song, she went on to appear in Perfectly Frank, Blues in the Night, Ain't Broadway Grand, Chicago, Jerome Robbins Broadway, and Les Miserables. She has appeared in three shows for City Center Encores, Carnival, The Boys from Syracuse, and Tenderloin. Debbie, thank you for joining us on a Sunday morning here on Broadway Radio. It's, it's always a Sunday morning on Broadway Radio. <laughs> <laughs> but James, but James, mm -hmm. you, okay. didn't mention, you didn't mention Spotlight. Oh, oh my God! Remember, Peter, Debbie. Knew, oh my God! Turn yes. on the spotlight. Remember, and something wonderful happens. Yep, I sure do. How could I forget that? Yes, indeed. I saw the gypsy run through at the Palace Theater. That's why uh, I know about this show that, uh, alas, closed in Washington. But what I do want to mention more than anything else was November tenth, nineteen eighty, when I was at the first preview of Perfectly Frank. And this is the only time I have ever seen anybody really stop the show. 
Now, <laughs> you hear about stopping the show, meaning a lot of applause. No. What happened is after this lady sang <laughs> Junk Man, she left. She left. She was gone. But we would not stop applauding. She had to come back through the curtain and take a bow right then and there. I've been to the theater 12,000 times. I've never seen that happen any other time. So there. Wow. wow. Should we finish now? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, Debbie, that's the way I, I, I feel about most of your career is that it, it's one spectacular thing after another. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you have passed it on uh, to your son, who is uh, at the uh, playing at the Gershwin and Wicked too. So, what's it like to see a child following your footsteps like that? You know, it's so funny because so I have this upcoming show, uh, and my first guest on this Debbie Gravit plus one thing is Stephen Schwartz, and I was thinking about you know, I, I, I realized I really need to put my big girl pants on and <laughs> figure out what I'm going to actually ask, even though all these people that I'm inviting to be with me are more friends than not. So we can just sort of sit there. But one of the things I was thinking about is how Stephen Schwartz has a son who's in show business, well, that's right, sort yeah. of mm-hmm. navigating that as a parent who's sort of, you know, done it. You know what the big issue for me is, first of all, my son is, he's his own man. So, so, you know, half the things I say, he's like, oh my God, mom, like I just, I'm his mom. And then there are the phone calls, like the Tony award winning mom. Mm -hmm. So there's always like sort of a differentiating between us with that. I, I know when he needs me as his mom and I know when he needs like the showbiz person. Um, it's been really fun, but it's also, I have to say, a little heartbreaking is a little extreme, but for him to basically, he was doing Wicked on Broadway as Fierro, finally starring, you know, Broadway show. And two weeks in, March 12th happened, and we all know what happened. Yeah. So since he's come back to the theater, all the things at being on Broadway, having people come into your dressing room, mm-hmm. signing autographs, being sort of in the public, you know, getting mm-hmm. that sort of fan <laughs> insanity at times, he has missed out on all sort of the mm-hmm. good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, one but, day he said to but, me, but okay, he, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, but he did get a, a, a wonderful taste of it when he did his fabulous show at Birdland a couple of weeks ago. Yes. When everyone in the world was there and it was absolutely packed. I've never seen a, a more packed house at Birdland hmm. than, for, than for Sam's show. Yeah, it was pretty, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about uh, your show oh, and... Yeah. Tell us about your show. You've uh, put this wonderful three evening together at Birdland. And uh, for those of us who look at this, we see, oh, we have to go three times. Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. <laughs> I think there are a few tickets available. So um, I so I had done one of those, you know, one night only and you sing a song at Birdland and and Jim Caruso, the wonderful Jim Caruso who runs the joint partly uh, said, we have to have you back. What do you want to do? And I went, well, what do I want to do? And I, I thought about, 
you know, the older you get and the longer you've been around in our business and you're sort of still standing, it feels like there are like 12 people left at times, which isn't true. Mm-hmm. But those of us who've sort of just gone through it and we're here we are, mm-hmm. we're still here. And I thought I need to sort of take that out for a little run. And I decided to, the first three people I thought about were Stephen Schwartz, Mark Shaman, and Harvey Firestein. And I just called them <laughs> and I said, uh, if you're Jewish and in show business, will you please be in my show? Not really. <laughs> um, that's what I realized after I did that. Whoopsie. Um, and they all said, yes, of course, you know, this one couldn't do this date and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. and I completely bamboozled Harvey because he was about to do, you know, his book was about mm-hmm. to come yeah, out yeah, yeah. and you know his publicists were saying this and that and I said well you know just do it in September and it'll all be you know everyone will have read your book by then <laughs> so that's how I got Harvey but I'm really excited about it. I have no idea what I'm doing thank you very much so I'm really excited though <laughs> by the way I looked it up we last spoke with Debbie on May 1st 2016 oh. uh, so it's been a while but also how amazing is this uh, at that same on that same podcast we talked about uh, the father long day's journey into night tuck <laughs> everlasting dear Evan Hansen waitress american psycho and fully committed uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that was a quite a full podcast <laughs> wow so uh so debbie uh, what kind of band are you putting together for this thing are oh, you in that, the- it's a huge band it's a piano mm-hmm. <laughs> um you know the idea is that i so with steven i did concerts with him uh-huh. we did concerts before uh mm-hmm. wicked opened believe it or not. And I, you know, my personal claim to fame is that I sang Defying Gravity before anybody literally went to his house. Uh, We live in the same fictional uh, Connecticut town. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sat down at his incredible Meigenbergen, Horford, Steinen way. And I don't know what kind of piano. Amazing. (laughs) And, you know, it was, you know, 120 pages, and I sort of pretended to read music, <laughs> and there was Defying Gravity, and it, of course, it was mind-blowing, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did these concerts, and what's fascinating, which um, I don't know how to say this, but I guess I'll just say this, is that when we first first started doing these concerts, you know, there would be like 75 people, because Stephen Schwartz just was not a household name at the time. Um, Wicked hadn't opened. And then mm-hmm. obviously the more, the, the longer we went and Wicked now was open, it completely changed that. <laughs> so, so, you know, Stephen and I have been through it. We've, we've been through it. I've never been to one of his shows. It's the same with Mark Shaman. I've known Mark Shaman since he was a little pisher. For those who don't know what that means, like, he was barely out of diapers. I mean, we were, we were both, we'd both, well, I had just come to the city and I couldn't believe there was this guy who played the piano the way he did. And um, anyway, and he started doing arrangements for me. That was like his, his first, you know, orchestrations and, and 
he was at my wedding. I, you know, so we've stayed pals through all of this. It's, it's, it's fascinating to go through this life with these people. I don't have to tell you guys, you guys Mm -hmm. know everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And what time does for all of us. Mm. Mm. Have you gotten to see Plaza Suite yet? I have not. Because Mark wrote some really great music. I agree. <laughs> for the, the uh, like to go into each scene. Uh, like you want to write lyrics to those songs. They're, they're oh, I so agree. bouncy. I thought it was terrific too. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. He is, uh, I, I think that Mark is a complete genius who, mm-hmm. who uh, his brain, he's just got one of the, it reminds me of Marvin Hamlish. Like they mm-hmm. just can't, turn it off. Uh-huh. They can't turn it off. He's called me two or three times, you know, singing a song to me saying, is this a song already? Because uh-huh. he's got so much in his brain. And I'm always like, Mark, you know, that's a song that's from, you know, the original Mary Poppins or, you know, something like that. What was the Harvey connection? How'd you um, get? Well, Harvey, Harvey also when? lives in my town. I see. And we're just, we're sort of buddies. Uh-huh. We're, we're buddies. We, you know, have lunch and, and, you know, go to stop and shop and run into each other. Mm-hmm. And Harvey inevitably is telling me how, you know, he's just got to stop. You know, he's really upset because, you know, he doesn't want to do anything, but he does have seven projects in the wind. Mm-hmm. And I always mm-hmm. slink away going, I am a complete unworthy person in show business who does not have seven projects mm-hmm. happening at once. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're glad you have this one, though. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. So, Deb, you basically live in Schmigadoon, Connecticut. That's correct. right. <laughs> That's correct. Now, in addition to these three shows at Birdland, I have to mention that coming up in May, we have a toast to Steve and Evie uh, at the Axel at the Axelrod Performing Arts Center, where I just saw and raved about this amazing production of The Bridges of Madison County. Oh, and, I'm so and happy. And so now we're looking at have you been have you physically been there yet? I have not. I met the man who runs the place, uh, Andrew DePrisco, and uh, we just we became friendly. And then I I was doing like a Judy Garland hundredth anniversary something or other, mm-hmm. and um, I told him about this show. This this show was supposed to happen. This toast to Stephen Eady, who I do with their son David Lawrence. Yes. By the way. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome. And I have some weird preternatural, if that's how you say the word, Mm -hmm. uh, some weird thing with Edie Gourmet. Like I just, she is in my DNA somehow. Um, Yes, I've seen you play her more than once. I exactly. (laughs) Um, So we put this show together. I, I mean, I literally said to the guy who runs the McCallum Theater in Palm Desert, Three years ago now, you know, thinking of doing this, he said, yes, let's do it. And that's just sort of how it began. And it's really it's a spectacular show, if I say so myself. (laughs) Um, And hopefully we're going to be everywhere. We are actually going to do Birdland. And we kind of went, you know what? If you're going to sing Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet songs and use a big orchestra and have costumes and dialogue and thousands of musicians you have to do it in a real venue so we're hoping we can even do it somewhere in new york that's what we really want to do in fact um you were um 
in the um, Isn't She Great movie, right? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is it like to have a mind like that? <laughs> but, but isn't that, didn't you play um, that part in that movie? Yes, I played Edie Gourmet. <laughs> I thought And so. David played, um, yeah, that was, I think that's the first time we, we were them together. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I came out of the trailer and he said, hi, mom. It was pretty weird. Um, yeah. And uh, and then, of course, uh, there was that marvelous musical that we saw at the McCarter Theater. Um, oh, the big time. Right. Yes. Uh, where you were uh, essentially, essentially playing um, Edie Gourmet. Not right. really. <laughs> not I really. Played Donna Stevenitti. Right. <laughs> Hey, well, honestly. many, many of us had been hoping that encores would do Golden Rainbow <laughs> for you and, and David. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to happen now, uh, but no. that would have been amazing. It would have been amazing. Yeah, well, we did it's... see that at uh, 54 Below. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. Wow. You yes. guys get out in life. I need to do that more. <laughs> You're apparently doing it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're there to see you. you That's know? right. <laughs> I know, but, you know, it's good to see things, too. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. I'm mm-hmm. going to start doing that more. Just there you go. You guys. We're a good influence. Yeah, that golden rainbow at 54 was incredible. Wasn't the composer there? Oh my gosh, he's show. still writing new songs. I yeah, just he is. something new for him. He he does not want to give up. Yeah. It's so admirable. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. I love it. He's it's, a great guy. Walter I, I Marks. Knew, mm-hmm. I knew a lot of these writers. That was another thing. I was this is very random, but I was um I was at a friend's and the PBS show came on like the Jewish writers of Broadway. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Yes. There's a better title for it. And I sat there and I went, oh, my God, I worked with all of these people, obviously uh-huh. not the Gershwins, mm-hmm. not, but but, you know, from Julie Stein, Burton Lane, uh, not Burton Lane. Yes, Burton Lane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just, you know, the list goes on and on. And I really was taken aback by how. Even later in life, they kept trying. Julie Stein kept trying to do the red shoes. You know, he was like 112 and he (laughs) still wanted to do the red shoes. Um, It's just it's amazing to me. Debbie, Debbie, a true musical theater fan does not refer to the red shoes as the red shoes. He refers to it as the shoes as red as blood. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. Brought me down a notch. I guess th- there was a lot of blood involved in that show. <laughs> well, that's when it finally story, came yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. The uh, the PBS thing you're talking about is uh, Broadway Musicals: A Jewish Legacy. Is that the one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Great. Yes. We'll mm-hmm. throw that in the show notes because you can see it on the PBS website. Uh, looks like something we should all catch up on. Uh, I I I ask this of everybody who has has voiced a Disney cartoon. Uh, do you get, do you get recognized? Uh, and, um, what's it like to be part of something that is just so globally known and that you get money from? Yeah, that, that's also good. Yeah. Mailbox money, we call it. Um, well, that was like a hundred years ago, which is so funny. And what's so funny about being in the little mermaid, she's got it bad. 
Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> is that you, you, you know, you, I auditioned and of course I don't sing. I'm not one of the singing sisters. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the speaking sisters. Mm-hmm. I think, you know what? It's incredibly fun. I, I think, you know, I have a Tony award and, you know, traveled the world singing and all people really want to talk about is the little mermaid and mm-hmm. my son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but uh when when little mermaid came out um uh were your kids freaked out that mommy saw they the were script? not born my children not born well, eventually they saw it event, but eventually right? saw it. very proud but i'm you know i'm most proud that my uh my credit is like the first one of like the thousand so i'm uh-huh. like number one of one thousand uh-huh. and it's that's that's thrilling for me. I mean, it's amazing. You know, my uh, Alan Menken is another pal of mine, and it's it's. Do you play tennis with him and Stephen? <laughs> I have because they do that tennis every Sunday morning. We can't get them on Broadway Radio because they play <laughs> tennis. Yes, yes, I I've been to both their tennis courts. <laughs> it's, I don't even get me started on their homes. <laughs> it's very humbling. Um. Yes. Both. <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted you about Ellen Menken. Oh no, no, no! It's just yes. It's really it's 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 amazing to be in the Disney verse mm-hmm. uh, in all ways. I, I love it. I'm very, very proud of that. And you know, it's like everything else. I'm like, where is the next one? I want to do another one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think I think a lot of stuff I've done is sort of one and done. Thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, I want to remind listeners that your show is uh, coming up and you have, as you mentioned, spread across uh, different ti- different times. You have April 11th with Stephen Schwartz. You have May 9th with Mark Shaman. You have September 12th with Harvey Firestein. Uh, all at Birdland Jazz Club. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway. Yes, Radio. indeed. It mm-hmm. is so my pleasure, and hopefully next time I will know how to plug my Yeti in. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> that is important. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> Thanks, Bye. guys. Have a Bye. great day. Bye, Jane. She heard him play, and strange to say she liked him better. So we are starting our our trek into the massive number of open shows. <laughs> I, w- I was just noticing on uh, what's playing on Broadway um, that there are thirty shows playing right now on Broadway. Right? We're we're almost we're almost back to full strength. But on the flip side of it, we just heard that the uh, Daniel Craig uh, Macbeth mm. has been canceled for a week uh, due to uh, mm. Daniel Craig getting COVID. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's only a 15-week run, so I don't know if it's going to be a 14-week run or yeah. if they're going to extend for a week or mm. what's going to happen mm. there. But also mm. seeing lots of um, COVID substitutions happening over at Company on Broadway. So we're not done with COVID yet, but uh, mm. we still have to move forward here because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Plaza Suite opened up last week and the three of us got a chance to see it. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on Plaza Suite? I loved it. I thought it was a delightful evening. I was somewhat surprised for whatever reason. I thought that maybe it wouldn't be 
so good or that this play itself wouldn't hold up or that there might be uh, something lacking in the performances. I guess I was primarily concerned about Matthew Broderick because uh, I think I agree with many people that over the past several years, he seems to have become calcified in his uh, in the way that he performs on stage in terms of his speech, uh, his body language, etc. But uh, I'm delighted to say that there was some of that in this, but it only actually fed into the comedy because he's supposed to be playing three very different characters in these three one act plays that make up Plaza Suite. Uh, and he his look was very different in in all three uh with the help of makeup and wigs uh and uh and he uh, he indicated that they were very different people and sometimes his his cadences were were similar and and you could tell that that he was um it's falling into that 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 thing that he's been doing but it only it just made it funnier to me because the the whole thing has a very uh farcical presentational quality about it i, I wouldn't say that these are realistic plays uh, i don't think i would use that word it's a, a very specific type of comedy um that very well made comedy that that neil simon was writing at the time the show uh opened on broadway in 1968 and uh one of the most interesting things about it to me was that i um I really didn't know the play very well. I had seen a, a community theater production many years ago, and uh, I guess I enjoyed it, but it didn't really make much impression on me either way. Uh, and then I saw the movie. I finally caught up with the movie only about a year ago, and I really, um, I, overall, I really did not like it. I, I found in the movie, I found the comedy very dated, and I also um, had a, a big issue with the f- final playlet, which is about um, these two parents who are at the Plaza Hotel for the wedding of their daughter. Uh, And the daughter, uh, unfortunately, has locked herself in the bathroom of the hotel suite. Uh, We don't we're not sure exactly what the problem is until the end of of the little playlet. Uh, But it turns out that she is she's got (laughs) jitters to say the least and uh and she finally tell tells them uh through a note that uh she is the, the problem is that she is afraid that she and her fiance are going to turn into <laughs> her parents um and uh so that you know that that's the the reason that's given and i i guess it 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 uh for some reason in the in the film it just bothered me greatly that um that she was locked in the bathroom because i was focusing on what she must be feeling and the fact that all of these people are being kept waiting downstairs in the function room including her groom and it it, it just did not seem funny to me in the movie but for some reason in the show it does maybe it's the distance of of the stage uh you know on stage in a in a theater as opposed to the intimacy of film uh it just seemed less the problems seem less realistic and more of a device and i just had no issue with it uh in in the show i i thought it just served the comedy very well and uh I, 
that's fascinating to me that I had such a differing reaction to this film and to this production. Sarah Jessica Parker is completely wonderful in all three of the playlets. I, um, I, I'm very impressed by the fact that she seems to have lost not an iota of her ability as a stage actress, even though she hasn't done that much of it uh, over the past several years. She has she has returned uh, occasionally to do things. I, I saw her in a playoff broad that, that she was very good in, uh, but she, she everything is sharp as far as her comic timing and her charm on stage is incandescent and the audience really seemed to love her and they really love seeing her performing with her husband in this play by Neil Simon that held up much, much, much better than I ever thought it would. And on top of all that, it is being performed at the Hudson Theater, which is a jewel of a theater that has been restored to us in fairly recent years. Um, I was struck again by how beautiful the theater itself is in terms of the uh, just the, the architecture of it. If you look up at the ceiling and the walls, uh, it's one of the rare theaters that has light colored, very light colored walls rather than dark. Can, uh, can you guys think of another one offhand? <laughs> mm, no, uh, no. Uh, the the Virginia uh, for a while did have um, a yeah. pinkish type of tint, but um, when City of Angels came in, they um, no. When Carrie came in, they painted it black, right? Yeah, for yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah, and I guess that you, you're not quote unquote supposed to do that uh, because it's supposed to be darker for lighting mm-hmm. purposes. But yeah. mm-hmm. but it really, uh, it, you know, it it just uh, didn't seem to be an issue, and I just loved being in that theater for this very wonderfully, uh, surprisingly hilarious <laughs> evening, uh, very well directed. It seemed to me by John Benjamin Hickey, I guess it's harder, even harder in a case like this when it's essentially only two actors and three others who, who have very, very minor roles, uh, two actors who are married to each other. Uh, I, I guess it's mm. even harder to mm. determine how much the director mm. did, but mm. I know apparently he is quite a close friend of Matthew and Sarah. And I, one might have viewed it as uh, whatever nepotism. I mean, he's not John Benjamin Hickey is not primarily known as a director, but it seemed to me that he did a really terrific job with it. And I would urge everyone to go see this uh, because it's, it just was thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, Rob Johnson adds in the uh, chat room that the Helen Hayes has uh, lighter walls since the renovation. I, I can't recall. Uh, oh, well, they did. The, yeah, but they also afternoon. did that that weird thing to it that, with those weird designs on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, what's your take on Plaza Suite? Well, um, I have a big history with this play. Um, I when I was a high school teacher, I um, I directed the third play. And uh, the actress who played uh, the wife um, has gone on to win a Tony Award, but not as an actress, uh, as a costume designer, Susan Hilferty, who has certainly had a a number of credits. But uh, anyway, she was terrific in the show. And so was my um, leading man, Paul Regan. um, Terrific. So and then I directed in community theater once. So um, it's a play I know well. So uh, I came with preconceived notions. But what I wasn't prepared for was the fact that um, the Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker were going to be so beloved that tell me, Michael, if this happened to your performance, James, if it happened at yours, 
they got entrance applause each of the three times. Yes. Mm-hmm. Did that happen sure. to us too? Yes, yes it did. I, 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 I've never seen that happen. You know, so um, that's really uh, shows that people came wanting to love them. And certainly um, they got what they came for. Um, I do think there's a problem with the set design for that third play. And I think mm. the action should have been pushed farther out because if you're on the extreme right side and yes. this is really a warning, yes. you can't see that door. Um, and there's a lot of activity <laughs> that comes when they're trying to um, get that girl out of the bathroom door. So I think that's a real problem. And I think the set should have been pushed forward so everybody could see everything. Peter, um, let me interrupt you for a second. Did you guys hear what happened opening night? No. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That uh, he, Matthew it, ran it, through the door, the door and broke into it. Into it. <laughs> and, yeah, right. <laughs> yes, he, I lit- did hear that. <laughs> he literally broke through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I did hear God. that. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, so that was um, something I think that was a problem. Um, a, a minor detail, I'll grant you, but um, I think when that girl comes out of the bathroom, she should wear a very traditional wedding dress. Yeah, I know, I know it's 1969, and I know that styles were changing, but I think people expect a, a, a bride to be in a traditional wedding dress, and I think that would make the message a little more. Um, aware too that um this was a big plaza wedding now somebody could counter argument and said yes but don't forget this girl is thinking along the lines of marriage may be a problem that indeed um so she's a forward-thinking woman and therefore would choose a forward-thinking dress and i i i can entertain that argument as well but i do think um a, a, a girl entering in a spectacular wedding dress um is something that would have made a much more uh, potent visual image. So I was very worried about the second play because this is about um, Jesse Kiplinger, a big Hollywood producer from Tenafly, New Jersey originally, but it's 17 years later and he's really made his mark. He doesn't make classic films. No, he makes that very clear. He makes um, popular films, but nevertheless, he's made a fortune. He's now living in Humphrey Bogart's old house and so on and so forth. And he wants to meet his old girlfriend from 17 years ago. And yes, he does want to seduce her. And I thought, whoa, in the Me Too era, this is going to be a problem. No, it really isn't because you can tell that she comes there hoping that this is going to happen too. She denies it, but we know what she's, uh, um, there, there are plenty of setups where I'm, um, I'm going to leave, stay five minutes. I can't, you, please, just five minutes. No, I can't. Five minutes. Okay. There are many jokes like that in this play, <clears throat> many um, along those lines where she changes her mind um, all too quickly. And we know that she uh, never meant what she said in the first place. So it didn't come across as offensive to me. So um, my worries were for nothing. However, the first play, the first play, which was very controversial back in 1968. And yes, I'm old enough to have seen the pre-Broadway tryout in Boston of this show with Maureen Stapleton and George C. Scott and the unknown Bob Balaban as the bellhop and mm. the, the groom. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. I, and this time, even though I had directed uh, the entire show uh, in community theater and certainly had seen the tryout and had seen the movie and all that, this was the first time that I really found myself questioning that first play in a way that I never had before. Okay, here's the situation. It's the um, wedding anniversary of this couple. She is 48 or 49 years old. She's not sure. That's part of the joke that she doesn't really pay attention to things like this. He is very aware of how old he is, and he's trying to fight old age while she's pleased. It happens to everybody. What are you going to do? Um, it's So they're celebrating the inter- their anniversary <clears throat> in the exact same room that they uh, had their honeymoon. Of course, there is an argument about whether or not it is the same room. He has a feeling it's a different room. And so they're, they're bickering throughout. 
And eventually uh, the phone call comes in and the secretary from his office comes in um, that he has to work. There's just nothing he can do. Um, this is a big deal and they're not going to blow it. And so he has to um, kibosh this celebration of the anniversary. She's a little suspicious. And she finally gets out of him that he's having an affair with that secretary. And he leaves her to go be with the secretary. It never occurred to me before that I think anybody in this situation, especially one who's trying to keep this information from a wife, would say to the girlfriend, honey, um, yes, I'll see you on Wednesday. I'll see you on Friday. But Thursday's my anniversary and I've got to spend it with my wife. In fact, <laughs> if I don't, you know, she's going to get terribly suspicious, you know. So uh, really, I'll look forward to Friday, but Thursday's out. You know, and so that never occurred to me before. But I think that's a real problem with this play. And it really makes him a terrible human being. He's not very nice to her through the entire play. There is one moment he says, Karen, let's not fight. Let's be nice to each other. And that's good. You know, but the fact that he's actually walking out on their anniversary, um, I think is much too severe. So that bothered me tremendously. However, you know, and and believe me, this was a big issue for Neil Simon um, in 1968, because you have to understand this comes after the happy go lucky carefree um, come blow your horn barefoot in the park. Yeah, the odd couple. The Star Spangled Girl was out just um, to make you laugh as well. Uh, Sweet Charity was a happy-go-lucky musical. And what happened here? You know, suddenly Neil Simon was getting serious on us. He would get serious on us as the years went on, too, of course. Um, <clears throat> but this was the first time, and people were kind of shocked. And a lot of people were very soured on that play. Nevertheless, Plaza Suite turned out to be one of his longest-running Broadway attractions. I'd see the second or third. Um, <clears throat> Barefoot ran the longest. Um, I think... I, I always forget if uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, a Plaza Suite ran longer. It's one of the two, but at the very worst, Plaza Suite is third. So that's kind of interesting. And um, not, and of course, the very interesting thing about the movie is that there is a profound difference in them. I should use this as a trivia question. The thing is <laughs> that um, while Maureen Stapleton played all three roles in the original production uh, for the movie, she only played the first one. Mm. Um, and um, Barbara Harris took over for the second one and Lee Grant for the third third. So uh, that's a very different set of circumstances. And I have a feeling they felt that um, on stage, Maureen Stapleton, Stapleton could get away with uh, seeming um, young enough uh, in the in the next play, because there, there's something about the next play that they're only supposed to be 17 years out of high school. So what does that mean? You know, that's not very old. <clears throat> and frankly, Maureen Stapleton wasn't very old at that point in time either, even though she'd already played Dick Van Dyke's mother in the <laughs> Bye Bye Birdie movie. You know, she was only a few years older than he. But she uh, she did seem to be uh, older, at least in those days and when we saw people as older. So um, but uh, I will tell you, uh, I am totally convinced that everybody who went to that show when I saw it, I saw it yesterday afternoon. When did you guys go? Uh, I went about two weeks ago. Michael? I went on uh, Friday. Okay, that's important to me because, you know, if we were all there yesterday, then that would explain the entrance applause three mm-hmm. times. But the fact that each of you was at a different performance does mean something. So I do think uh, not to take anything away from them, but I, don't you think it also has something to do with the fact that their look is so different in each of the plays, especially that I especially do. that second mm-hmm. one when uh, when uh, Matthew comes on as the producer and he's got that yeah. wig on and, you know, he's got mm-hmm. he's the wild kind of like late 60s uh, lounge wear. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I, th- I think you have something there, Michael. Uh, and um, uh, that that's probably more responsible for it than anything else. But um, but anyway, um, I dare say that uh, I have never 
heard people laugh uh, as much at that first play. And not not I don't mean to imply because it's a serious play that gets serious only at the end. I mean, there right. are plenty of funny lines up until then. And um, they really uh, were there to have a good time. And they certainly did. So I know the reviews were lukewarm, but um, I think there's a big hit here. I agree. I completely I wonder agree. if if whenever they want to leave, if there's going to be some attempt to hmm. um, cast a married couple. It'd be nice <laughs> if they could. I, I don't know if, uh, if any would apply or, um, or, or if any married couples indeed um, are right for the parts. But still, um, it, it'd be nice if this became some sort of uh, thing where you could get married couples to uh, to do it and keep it on Broadway. But it certainly is a throwback to another era because, you know, we don't have um, comedies like this anymore on Broadway. And so uh, I think people enjoyed that part of it, too, um, to see something um, retro and yet um, still enough that the, the situations, you know, married couples in trouble, that'll be now and forever. Um, you know, people for meeting their old boyfriends, girlfriends. I mean, that's, that's why a lot of people go to class reunions, you know, I mean? um, so uh, <laughs> that that's eternal. And so is the fact that a, a married couple that doesn't get along uh, and um, it has a profound influence on their kids uh, for not um, getting along. Uh, that's now and forever, too. So in a strange way, uh, as retro as Plaza Suite seems in many, many ways. And you do hear mentions of Jill St. John and Charlton Heston. And I mean, things like that are very smart, by the way, to put on the scrim uh, when the plays are taking place. I wish that happened much more in uh, yes. especially like in Miss Saigon, you know, yeah. um, you know, Tell us when we are actually seeing. Don't rely on people to look at the playbill to find out when it is. Um, so they do put um, 68 and 69 um, on the scrim. And that is very much to ground us into when this is happening. And I think that's very smart, too. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was uh, delightfully surprised at how much I responded to it, considering that the reviews were lukewarm. So, Peter, I, I, I I'm... <sighs> I'm in the minority here. I, I really didn't enjoy this production. Uh -huh. um, and uh, it, it's funny what you said because you brought up the fact that uh, that you felt that it was a hit. Maybe they would try to recast it. And I was thinking exactly the opposite. I was like, if it weren't Matthew uh, and Sarah Jessica Parker in this in, in this production, would it have been done? And I, I don't think so. Oh, no, oh. absolutely not. But. But and and I don't think I don't think it, it exists beyond them. Although uh, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith have some opening in their schedule, there, perhaps <laughs> that they can do it. Um, Perfect. So I, I, I mean, I, 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 I felt I felt like it, it just went on and on and on forever, and that uh, while I thought that. Um, that uh, Sarah Jessica Parker was doing uh, wonderful, wonderful work, and I thought Matthew was fine. Uh, I, I just didn't see the reason to put this on a stage again. But, uh, you know, if people enjoy it, and mm -hmm. people in my audience were really enjoying it, they obviously they were there not for the Neil Simon play, but for mm -hmm. Matthew and Sarah Jessica Parker. And uh, what's been interesting is that I've not seen Matthew do any press about his history with Neil Simon. And, oh, sure, yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and certainly that's... I, I wonder what that... I wonder what Matthew has to say about the... Uh, Neil Simon in the different parts of his life and his career mm. and how he feels yeah. about it, it certainly made his career. It sure did. Um, 
Sure do. And, and that's really wonderful. And, and it's wonderful to see uh, a, a couple really f- flexing their muscle. Uh, you know, <laughs> one of the common acting exercises that if you're taking an acting class is uh, called five through the door. And you, you have the same things and you have to do five different interpretations of it. And here you basically have three through the door here mm-hmm, where they're mm-hmm. taking on three different, very different characters uh, in different stages of their lives. And uh, and I think that it was it's a great ex- acting exercise. Uh, I, did, I, I know we, we mentioned it with Debbie, but did you guys, either one of you talk about Mark Shaman's music? I yeah I brought it up I said yeah. how, brought, how okay, great yeah. it was and and I, I almost felt like I wanted to write lyrics to it yeah because <laughs> it was so bouncy and melodic I and, thoroughly agree yeah really really mm-hmm. wonderful music yeah. uh, the, uh, uh, before we give people the wrong impression there's not very much of it no, um, no. I, I doubt if it amounts to uh, three minutes but nevertheless uh, yeah. it's really mm-hmm. good <laughs> yeah so uh, that is. Uh, well, let me ask you this, James. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. that is, uh, was this the first time you've ever run into this property? Yes. Uh huh. It okay. is. I, yeah. I've not seen the movie. I've never seen it before. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I didn't have any preconceived notion of what it was going into mm-hmm. it, other than maybe it was that I was expecting a Neil Simon comedy. Maybe that was it. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, and certainly was was not a Neil Simon. <laughs> All right. So, in fact, uh, were you surprised that the uh, first play took this um, very dramatic turn? Um, no, I, I sort of saw it coming. Um, no, there are hints. God knows. You know I, I, mean? I saw it. I saw it uh, coming that he was not very excited to be in the in. Oh, in sure. Right. At the plaza and yeah, that he yeah. had, you know, he kept on saying he had work to do and he kept on putting her off. So I sort of saw that whole thing kind of, you know, the, the, <laughs> you put the gun in the scene, it's got to be used. Yeah, so. no, I agree with that. And um, the the clues are all there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was just wondering, with Neil Simon's reputation, mostly as a gagmeister, mm-hmm. uh, if you inf- if you felt that the play was going to just be funny um, top to bottom. That's what the, my point. We should yeah. mention, I, I thought Sarah looked amazing and all, yes. all. Well, not the last one so much because she's wearing that big hat and, and you know, mm-hmm. but the first two. And actually, I thought she maybe that. Uh, she should have looked a little frumpier in the first one. Uh, that that the fact that she didn't look oh, frumpy mm, in the first yeah. one, I think, changed our reaction to that play. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, was the uh, I'm forgetting here, and I don't have my playbill right in front of me. Is is the um, the the secretary assistant in the first scene the daughter at the end? Yes. She is? Okay. Okay. I totally didn't connect that. But yeah. All right. So that is Plaza Suite. It's scheduled through June 26, 2022. And I'm assuming uh, we'll be hearing more about that as award season comes around. So, uh, Peter, you got over to the Ethel Barrymore Theater to see Paradise Square. So tell us what you think about this new musical. Oh, I thought it was terrific. Um, I enjoyed it immeasurably. Well, I wonder if I can say that. Uh, it's it's not a pleasant story. I admired it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly respected it. And um, 
but it's certainly even though the choreography is magnificent i mean truly truly wonderful and you really have to um give bill t jones the tony right now uh for what's going on the opening number um certainly uh establishes that but throughout the show there's one production number after another one could even argue that there's one too many production numbers after another but mm-hmm. nevertheless um if so uh, let's take the embarrassment of riches and um and accept them so moises kaufman has done a magnificent job of directing this very difficult show with um dozens of people and um ironically enough this is strangely enough a a, a, a story that's been told on Broadway in a musical before in a manner of speaking, because back in 1968, the, the Plaza Suite was doing well. There was a musical called Maggie Flynn and Maggie Flynn dealt with the issue of the fact that back in, in the 1860s, when Abraham Lincoln says, OK, we're going to draft people. And if you want to get out of the draft, you got to pay three hundred dollars to get out of the draft. Whoa. You know, I mean, three hundred dollars. What is that today? I mean, that's <laughs> that's got to be in five figures at very least. So um, so it was all about should we have a draft? Um, and a lot of um, people are very in in, in Paradise Square, um, which is actually a bar. But anyway, the five points are, are certainly up in arms about this um, to mix a metaphor, because indeed, uh, a lot of them don't want to go because they don't believe in in the Civil War. They don't believe that um, the white people don't believe they should be fighting for the black people. It's that simple. Um, it's too simple, but it's that simple. And as a result, that's the conflict in the show, whether or not uh, people are going to go peacefully and be drafted or whether they're going to resist. And uh, there were riots about this. And uh, certainly uh, bad things did happen to a lot of people as a result of what's going on here. So. Um, it's really wonderful that um, this original musical was conceived by Larry Kerwin in a very different type of form. It was uh, going to be all Stephen Foster songs. There's only a few snatches of Stephen Foster songs left. Um, But Christina Anderson and Craig Lucas, I don't know if one succeeded the other. I don't know if they worked together in the same room. Um, I have no idea. But anyway, um, they've come up, and Larry Kerwin gets credit too, Um, they've come up with a a pretty arresting book, um, and and uh, we really get invested in these characters so much so um, that we really care about what's going to happen to them. Now, Paradise Square is the bar run by um, Nellie O'Brien, played by, by uh, Joaquina Calacongo, um, who I think has to be the front runner for the Tony Award. Uh, I know I'm mentioning Tony's a lot here, but um, uh, <laughs> let the achievement fit the achievement. So um, tremendous, tremendous performance as a woman who um, sees her husband go to war. In fact, wonderfully played by Mac Bogart. Um, he goes to war and uh, she has to it all falls on her to run the place. And she's really up to the challenge. There's no question about that. And um, she's just magnificent in dealing with everybody. Well, uh, indeed, uh, one slave um, has killed his master and has um, escaped to the north and uh, should she harbor him she doesn't quite know that things are as bad as that Um, we find that out later but nevertheless um, she does um, harbor him and um, well there's going to be a price to pay for that as well and how they find out about him is a very clever maneuver and has a lot to do with Stephen Foster who unwittingly spills the beans unwittingly and i'm telling you it was so incredible when the the audience got wind of what was happening i heard such a moan a moan a collective moan i would say at least 40 percent of the house 
moaned when they saw that this young man that they really came to um, care for, his name is Washington Henry, that's not his real name, that's his alias. Um, Sidney Pont plays him phenomenal. Um, so uh, so things really get tough there. And then we're also very interested in Owen uh, Dugnan, uh, played by A.J. Shively, um, who's an, an Irish immigrant who comes to America expecting to see the streets paved with gold. And he says, now I see they're covered with piss. And he mentioned some other thing, too. I don't remember what the other one was. Um, so uh, so the American dream certainly becomes a nightmare to him very, very quickly. And of course, he's eligible for the draft. Um, all of a sudden, here's you come to America, you think you're going to get a job, you think you're going to be rich and famous. And you, you now you're about to be drafted. I mean, whoa, you know, I mean, so all these situations are really very, very, very arresting. Um, Jason Howland, who conducted as well, by the way, uh, did the music and it's stirring and wonderful. Um, a lot of terrific anthems. And uh, so that's really a, a great asset to the production as well. There are two lyricists, um, which, um, you know, I don't know who has succeeded whom or again, if the same type of thing happened but, um, to um, work together in conjunction. But Nathan Tyson gets first billing. Um, very good lyricist. And uh, Masia Sayer um, is the other lyricist. I will say that they're um, their basic rhymes. I mean, you know, um, along the line of the June Moon type of uh, thing, there are very few um, dazzlingly clever rhymes. And that's not the, what they wanted to do. These are simple people. And so as a result, they didn't. Um, deal with anything um, of a clever nature, but the, but they're certainly in character and that's what we want lyrics to be. And they certainly are. So um, here's uh, whatever we want to say about Kof Drabinsky and Lord knows we can say it. The fact remains that um, he does take on uh, ambitious, intelligent projects. And this is certainly what, I mean, this is, you know, you know, in a way, in a way, I'm sorry to say this does seem like ragtime light, um, but still there's enough potency here to really, really affect you. And um, I cannot talk about this without mentioning um, Nellie O'Brien's 11 o'clock number. Um, again, you know, uh, applauding during a number, we see that occasionally and um, standing after a number we see occasionally, but only occasionally. And every audience member I know who has gone to see this during previews told me there was a standing ovation at the end of let it burn. And um, there was last night too, when I was there. So I give this show every possible break. I hope it happens. I, I want this to succeed because it's an intelligent, ambitious, sincere show. And it has a lot to say about race relations and immigrant relations that remind us that here we are all these decades later more than a century and it still hasn't been uh, solved and um let's hope that this uh, helps people to uh appreciate the values that uh, we need them to appreciate so yes paradise square so the elephant in the room is that uh garth Drubinsky. Sure. is this is this going to be something that the broadway community holds against Garth, or do you think that they'll be able to overcome this? Um, I do suspect that they're going to judge this show in its own merits because the merits are considerable. Uh, I, I, um, Linda, my girlfriend, um, said to me, <clears throat> yeah, uh, just what I said to you about the fact that he, he chooses ambitious projects, and um, she's the one who brought that up. And I think that is going to um, overcome everything else. 
we'll see. God knows I've been wrong a million times in my life. That's probably an underestimation, too. Um, but um, <laughs> the fact remains that um, it's a good show. So um, I'm hoping that's what's going to uh, uh, be the, the guiding force in this. Okay. So there is the first review of Paradise Square from us. Uh, Michael and I are going to see it this week, so we'll come back and talk with you next week about this as well and give you our, our points of view. But if, uh, if Peter's review is correct, Michael, uh, perhaps in a few years we'll be able to see, see 54 Sings Broadway's greatest hits, including <laughs> Paradise Square. But for right now, you just saw the, uh, the newest Scott Siegel production running down at Feinstein's 54 Below uh, with uh, a host full of very talented folks. So tell us uh, about 54 Sings Broadway's greatest hits. Yes, it was just last evening, and I primarily wanted to go because two of the stars were the Drinkwater Brothers, uh, Matthew and John, who will be uh, starring in my uh, presentation of The Boys from Syracuse in Concert on June 16th, uh, which had been delayed from December because of the pandemic. Uh, so we're all still really looking forward to that. And uh, But those guys have been around making guest appearances in the the lineup at Birdland and also cast party and also doing their own shows at Birdland and elsewhere. Uh, so they're really, they're really getting very popular and it's well-deserved. Uh, but also Leroy Reams uh, was to be in the show and I love Leroy. So I thought it would be great to see those guys in the same show. Unfortunately, Leroy uh, apparently got, ill nothing nothing major and dropped out very late um uh, very very much last minute uh and so because of that everyone else in the show i think got to do more than they would have done otherwise including the drink waters so uh and also uh, with leroy dropping out i think the um I mean, I'm not sure exactly, but the average age of everyone involved was very young. <laughs> uh, the drink waters I know are 24, and I don't think any of these other people were older than them. So it was a, a, a wonderful evening of wonderfully talented young people singing, for the most part, classic Broadway songs. Uh, Matthew uh, early on did Sit Down, Your Rockin' Boat. Uh, which I was reminded that he had played nicely, nicely Johnson in a high school production, <laughs> or maybe it was even junior high school of Guys and Dolls. So it was fun to see him do that as an adult. Uh, John did, he made the most amazing choice. He did Betrayed from the producers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it was it just brought the house down, uh, even out of context. I mean, the, 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 there's so much of that song that refers to other things that happen in the show sure. uh but but whatever the audience just he got a tremendous ovation after it, it was it was uh, an amazing moment and then uh together matthew and john did uh their uh kind of <laughs> classic uh rendition of you're nothing without me from city mm. of angels which is so, mm. always so amazing to see them do that because they are they are in fact twins and it adds so much to that mm -hmm. because it, it's supposed to be the the alter ego situation of this writer of mystery novels and his uh and his creation uh so that was that was great and then they did me and bobby mcgee 
uh, which I guess, you know, Scott Siegel justified as a show tune because it was in a night with Dallas, Janice Joplin. Um, so that, that was their part of the evening and they were fantastic. But in addition to that, there were these other uh, people, most of whom I was not aware of. This fellow Tyler McCall sang Something's Coming. And then later on in the uh, evening, he did it. He pivoted to do Defying Gravity. Mm. <laughs> uh, and both were great hits. Uh, Sophie Rapeco, R-A-P-E-I-J-K-O, did Somewhere That's Green and I Don't Know How to Love Him. There was a lot of versatility going, mm-hmm. on, going on in this show. And Scott mentioned that Sophie had sung uh, Somewhere That's Green in one of his previous shows of this type. And then she had sent a, a video of that as a, 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 to serve as a self-tape uh, audition for a production of Somewhere That's Green, a regional production uh, somewhere. Uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, a little shop of ours. And uh, she got the job. Mm. Uh, so she's going to be doing that later uh, in the spring or in the summer. Uh, th- this other incredibly talented young woman, Stephanie Bacasto, sang Till There Was You uh, and Popular mm. from Wicked. And uh, then um, the uh, the last person on the bill was a, a fellow named Christopher Bryan, who sang Empty Chairs and Empty Tables from Les Mis and Beautiful City from Godspell. This was all with... Um, the great Mark Hartman as the pianist musical director. And it was just a really, it really was a superb one of these evenings Uh, 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 for whatever reason or reasons, it was absolutely packed. Um, I had gone to some of Scott's previous uh, 54 sings Broadway's greatest hits and they weren't quite so full. Uh, He does so many of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, It's a regular uh, occurrence there at 54 below but this one maybe it was partly because it was a saturday night uh I, mm. I don't know uh it was it was really packed to the gills and the energy in the room was amazing and it was a fabulous night to be there and i'm so glad i went on very very short notice hmm. yeah the uh the list of all the different performances uh on the 54 website uh, mm. you have a tremendous number of opportunities to go see this which is awesome that is really, really wonderful. So that is uh, Michael's review. Uh, let's move on to the next thing, which uh, Peter got down to Greenwich House to see the Ars Nova production of Oratorio for a Living. So, Peter, tell us about this. It's hard to tell you about it because it's very hard to understand what's going on. Uh, one of the reasons it's hard to understand what's going on is a lot of people are singing at the same time um, in the Oratorio style, which you would um, expect from the title. Um, they do give you. Uh, a, a book with uh, the actual lyrics, the entire script. Uh, there you are. It's not that long. It's only 90 minutes. Um, however, much of the time you're in darkness. Um, I don't mean utter darkness. I mean, but too dark to read. So, so when the lights come up, you saw people uh, zipping through their programs and seeing where they were, what, the, what was going on. So it's very hard to understand. However, that aside, and of course, that's a big if, I'll grant you, the music by Heather Christian is phenomenal. 
whoa, really, really something. Um, these aren't really songs and these aren't really lyrics. I mean, they're almost pieces of prose that are put to music, but the music is extraordinarily arresting. Uh, it's not the most comfortable place to be in. Um, if you've been to Greenwich House before, it's been completely refigured. It reminded me very much, if you saw Town at the New York Theater Workshop, they built these bleachers and um, you sat, uh, stadium seating. Um, there's only four rows, uh, maybe five, but um, very few rows. And uh, and you sit on um, wooden folding chairs, so it's it's not the most comfortable situation. But um, you may feel it's well worthwhile for the music. Again, don't be surprised if you have no idea what's going on or how it all fits together. Mm-hmm. Very hard to do that, but it's not hard to adore Heather Christian's music. I usually have no idea what's going on, so I feel <laughs> right at home. <laughs> So, uh, you also got down to the Cherry Lane Theater to see Coal Country. So, tell us about this. Yes, this is very easy to see what's going on. And uh, even though some of it is very painful, this is uh, the story of what happened to West Virginia miners in, I think, 1981 when a mine collapsed. Um, of course, um, much of it due to negligence through the people who own the mine. And, um, and there were settlements made. But as much as money can um, help, um, solve some grief problems it doesn't solve them all and we heard about that day from various people um it's it's all based on actual uh interviews um that um the writers uh did with um jessica blank eric jensen and steve earl by the way eric jensen had to take over a part the day i went he was on book but um but he was very effective but Anyway, um, they went down there and they talked to the people and they put together a a show and uh, Audible, which has really become a big producer here in town, um, God love them, is is sponsoring it. And it did start um, off Broadway and now it's um, and now it's moved to the Cherry Lane, where I hope it runs forever, because it's so effective and so affecting to hear these people. Um, t- tell about that day when it was just another day when it started out, of course, and it wasn't another day by the time, time it ended. Um, to me, Mary Bacon is always a standout. Uh, he's one of these people that I, I imagine most of our listeners have no idea who I'm talking about. And I wish that weren't true mm. because she is such a spectacular actress. She has yeah. done so much good work with the now defunct, sad to say, tact theater company, uh, which was so wonderful, bringing a lot of terrific revivals. And here she is in this show, um, again, a wife, you know, having to deal with the fact that um, her husband may very well have died in this um, in this accident. And this is a case where uh, yeah, she, you can say with his life, this hope she doesn't of, of, of all the people, it seems like she's the one whose husband is missing the longest. And you, you, you know that missing means dead. You know that, but you convince yourself that missing means missing and that by some miracle he's going to uh, survive. Uh, and it's very moving. They've given her great stuff to say, but it's very moving the way that she delivers it and talks about uh, her life with him and without him. So um, a very effective piece. Again, Again, not a show um, for good times. Um, yeah, not a good show to uh, take the kids for a birthday. No, of course not. <laughs> but very, very effective on its own terms. And I, I wish it extraordinarily well. All right. And uh, finally, for the morning, uh, we are going to talk about uh, something that's happening tomorrow. So Michael's going to preview Brian Stokes Mitchell and Seth Rajetsky at Town Hall. So give us the info, Michael. 
Oh yeah, just that it it uh, Seth does these shows at Town Hall where he uh, basically sits with the star and and they talk and then the star uh, at regular moments gets up and sings with Seth playing. And uh, I've been to a few of those and they really are great. You really get to learn a lot about the uh, the star in question that you might not in other situations. Uh, the one. Uh, that really stands out in my mind was the Jeremy Jordan one. Weren't you yeah. at that James? I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. But there, there've been several and, and Seth is really, really so good at that. Uh, and choosing the people and then asking the right questions and then playing so well for them. So it, it is Brian Stokes Mitchell, who we don't see that often anymore. Um, and of course he gained um, a special recognition during the, pandemic for his uh, serenades that he was doing from his balcony of his <laughs> I was going to mention win- that yeah. his yeah, window yeah, of yeah, his, yeah, yeah. His, his apartment um, I was going to say I bet you that uh, Seth brings a window out on stage for him to <laughs> lean out of and sing you know <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah of course uh, Stokes as he likes to be called is is one of the Broadway musical theater greats he was a, mm-hmm. a guest on our podcast some years ago and he uh, it, it's always a privilege to see him, but I guess even more so now that his appearances are less frequent. So I think uh, it's very rare that these events sell out because there are so many seats at town hall. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can get a ticket and I would advise really looking into it. Okay. So that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia and our musical moment, I, will, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it can be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, tune in, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. If you want to get a transcript to this or any show on Broadway Radio, you can email transcripts at broadwayradio.com and include the name of the episode, and we will send you back a transcript of the episode. So, Peter, what do we have for uh, trivia? Do we have an answer for last week? Noel Coward wrote A Song at Twilight. Anna DeVia Smith wrote Twilight Los Angeles 1992. Jonathan Tolins wrote Twilight of the Golds. And yet, another play whose title was a synonym for Twilight set the wheels in motion for a successful 21st century musical. What is it? Well, the synonym for Twilight is Crepuscule, mm. which is the title of a play, each letter was separated by dashes, that was adapted into the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. So Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Mike Meany and Josh Israel. And that was it. So many of our regular names couldn't figure this one out. Oh, well, there's always this week. And here's this week's. He wrote the score for a Tony winning musical, but he didn't win best score for good reason. Ironically, this composer lyricist name can almost be found in the name of two of the show's characters. The composer's lyricist's first name was the surname of one character. His last name (laughs) includes the first name of another character. Who is he? Who are they? What's the show? 
Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's uh, musical moment? Well, we had a lot to choose from uh, for Debbie Gravitt, especially because I listened uh, back to our podcast with Debbie in, uh, from May 2016. And on that day, because we were reviewing so many new musicals, including Dear Evan Hansen and uh, Waitress, we, we used music from those uh, shows and nothing of Debbie. So this time, we, the, you know, it was open uh, to everything that she's ever recorded. So I chose for our opening music uh, her big moment from her Tony-winning performance in Jerome Robbins' Broadway, the song Mr. Monotony. And for the closer, I thought I would choose Don't Rain on My Parade, uh, which she recorded for her album entitled Defying Gravity, which she told us she was the first person to ever sing. Uh, but Don't Rain on My Parade obviously is back in the news now because of the Broadway revival of Funny Girl. And I think it's fair to say that there's been some controversy over the casting of Beanie uh, Felstein. We will see how that plays out when the reviews come out soon. But in the meantime, uh, people were saying, uh, it's speculating on who else could have played Fanny Bryce in a revival either now or in past years. And I think Debbie would have been an amazing Fanny Bryce because she mm-hmm. sings so mm-hmm. great and mm-hmm. so, so excitingly, but also she, as you could hear uh, from her participation in the podcast today, she's so funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think she would have been a great Fanny. I don't know if she ever did it anywhere. I, I don't think I, I ever either. checked that out. Uh, but anyway, here is a taste of, what Debbie Gravitt would have been like as Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Don't tell me not to fly. I've simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on my parade?
didn't make it Get ready for me, love, cause I'm a cop I simply gotta march, my heart's a drum Nobody, no, no 